Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. Essentially, these verses comprise the very apex, the apogee of the letter to the Jewish believers who were gathered likely in Rome and were constantly inundated with the temptation to go back to their religion. Constantly tempted like the plant that grew up in the soil that was too shallow to be choked out by the cares of this world. And it is to this particular beleaguered group that the author of the Hebrews writes this letter, this epistle, perhaps this sermon. And at this point, pulls together all of the open threads of his argument into one supreme conclusion. It represents the end of the exposition and the beginning of the exhortation. For the rest of next month, we're going to be wrapping up those exhortations. What does it mean for us to know the faith, the hope, and the love that we have in Christ? But for now, we have one last climb in front of us. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. This is God's word. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desire nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These were offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, 
I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is God's word. This is now the third in a three-part series that we've entitled Christ Our Substitute. Back in chapter 8, the last part of it, and in through chapter 9 to verse 10, we saw that Christ, our substitute, represents a way for us to have a perfect conscience. Then, from chapter 9, 11 to 28, we saw that he provides the perfect presence. And today, we're going to see that he is the perfect substitute. This sermon really wraps up the entire point of the series. He is the perfect substitute. And essentially, it represents the summit of the book. It's really the last leg that we need to study in order to get to the very top of Mount Hebrews. Now, for those of you who have been part of this climb from the very beginning, I'm sure it's going to be satisfying to take a few moments to kind of look back and appreciate how far we've come. We've covered a lot of the book of Hebrews in a rather short period of time. And that was the goal, the intention from the beginning, because As I told you, I don't want to get so bogged down in the details of the language of Hebrews to miss the purpose of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to be delivered. It was written to be spoken. It was written to be preached. And the author himself will at several places in the book say, I don't have time to go into this in more detail, but you know what I'm talking about. Likewise, we as the hearers now, these many years later, need to understand that the book has big sweeping themes that we need to be aware of, and that's why we've covered it in the amount of time we have. Now, there are also some of you who may have not been able to attend as often as you would have liked. You've missed gaps. Maybe some of you have been really trying hard to stay focused and keep your attention, but you're distracted by other matters, and you find yourself having checked out somewhere along the way, maybe because of the sheer size, the scope, the scale, the demands of the book on your mental, spiritual, or physical abilities. Well, you're not alone. The book has claimed many victims along the way, but also, I would tell you, you're not a failure. It's okay. In fact, what I would encourage you to do is just stick around, because I'm sure that in the very near future, we'll be back at this book, dropping in from time to time to Look back at the things that we've studied and learned. Remember, Sir Edmund Hillary didn't summit Mount Everest the first time he set eyes on it. Instead, his team surveyed it to to map out what would be the best way to climb it. And he came back resolute in his determination to return and to climb that mountain. And he famously said, I will come back again and conquer you because as a mountain you can't grow, but as a human I can. Now, first of all, let me be clear, we don't need to conquer Scripture. However, in some ways, the more we climb, the larger it gets, the the bigger it appears, and that in some ways is a blessing. But if you'll indulge me for a moment, I think the quote fits. You're going to come back to what you've learned here in Hebrews years from now, and I trust be able to better and more fully understand and appreciate it. In fact, I would hope that The longer you walk with the Lord, the the more you find yourself returning to familiar ground in the Scriptures and finding new and more beautiful things contained there that you'd never seen before. We're going to be back again someday. won't be the last time we take this hike. But with that in mind, I'd like you to turn your attention to the passage I just read to you because it is of 
absolutely staggering proportions. There's one big idea here in the text, and it's simply this, that Christ puts an end to the temporal and ushers in the eternal. Christ puts an end to the temporal and ushers in the eternal. We're going to see that in three acts this morning. Three acts. Number one, we're going to see the shadow turn to substance. We're going to see ritual turn to righteousness. And we're going to see sacrifice turn into sanctification. From shadow to substance, from ritual to righteousness, and from sacrifice to sanctification. The first section comes to us here in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. This is really a shadow and a mirror, if you will, of the first section in chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. I'll just remind you of what we studied there. That, that section ends with this kind of a, a chilling uh, and hopeful declaration. The, the, the end of that section ends with these words, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That's, that's the chilling part of it. Uh, it's not, it doesn't work. It's not enough. My conscience is still, is still bothered, even after the sacrifice has been made. But, verse 10, deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. That's the encouraging part. That in the Old Testament structure and system, uh, you came away from giving your sacrifice, knowing that you had done what God had called you to do, knowing you'd been obedient, but still being plagued by that doubt that what you did actually permanently, completely dealt with the sin that was bothering your conscience. Somewhere deep inside, you knew that that goat or that bull or that ram wasn't really able to lay down its life for you. Something had to happen in the future. This, this had to be pointing to something. Don't treat the first century believers and the Old Testament Jews with some sort of contempt where you make it seem as if they had no clue that this was not adequate. That, that, that's very presumptuous and arrogant on our part. I believe they knew full well that something more had to happen. And so they were looking forward to that day when it would finally be revealed. And that's the reformation we're talking about here in chapter 9, verse 10. That's the reformation that Jesus brought. And the arrangement here was the ceremonial law. And that law was like an ongoing symphony of, of gifts and sacrifices and offerings and washings. But it lacked the power to ultimately put that worshiper at ease. That worshiper, man or woman, was never really at ease. They never escaped the relentless pursuit of a guilty conscience. It's like that short story that Edgar Allan Poe wrote called The Telltale Heart. Maybe you're familiar with this. You read it when you were in school. It's a story of a man who... Um, decides for some reason that he is going to kill his neighbor, old man. He goes in night after night planning his murder. And he opens up the door and quietly sticks his head in, proving to himself time and again that he could get in there without being noticed. Each time he goes in, he takes his lantern and he, and he turns up the light a little bit more and a little bit more ever so quietly, perfectly quietly. In fact, as Poe writes the story, he, he goes on to describe just how intentional, how methodical, how deliberate, how planned out this murder was. 
And the time came for him to kill the old man. But as he goes inside, he accidentally makes a noise when he's turning up the light of the lantern, and the old man awakes and he shrieks. And the man in the story jumps upon him, he pulls him down to the ground, and he pulls the mattress over top of him, and he kills him. And he says to himself, I'm sure nobody heard that shriek. Then he goes about methodically dismembering this person and hiding his body in three of the floorboards right beside the bed. And he cleans up all of the blood. And he's proud of himself for what he's done. And then there's a knock at the door. It's about 4 a.m. And he goes downstairs and the police have arrived. And he starts to feel very nervous. But he invites them in and he acts like nothing has happened. And they look around and they see no evidence of a crime, no evidence of foul play. They go up to the very room where the man was sleeping. And clearly the man is gone, but there's no evidence that he's been killed. In fact, they're so comfortable with this murderer that they begin chatting with him there in the, in the room. And they're not really saying anything of consequence. In fact, they're almost laughing, it seems, to him, joking around sitting there on the floor right upon the very body itself. And he begins to think that, that they're mocking him because to him what he hears is the beating heart of the man that he's killed. And the murderer thinks he can hear it and it's getting louder and louder and louder. And the louder the beating heart gets, the more convinced he is that these police officers are pretending not to hear it, mocking his guilt until his conscience can bear it no more, and he finally screams out that, yes, he did. He murdered him. He's underneath the floorboards right there. He calls them villains for having brought him to that point of confession. What's, what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that the human conscience, when it knows that it's guilty, is never going to be satisfied until it's known true forgiveness. This is the main point of why Christ had to come in order to fulfill everything those sacrifices were pointing toward. In fact, here in verse 1, the author of Hebrews says that the law is but a shadow of these good things that are to come. The good things that are to come are the things that are brought when Christ comes. The true one. The one who will make the worshiper able to draw together and to God with a clean conscience with a perfect confidence. There's no stuff hidden in the floorboards of your soul. You're able to go with a clean conscience before the Lord because of what Christ has done. I want you to notice here, the law itself is not the shadow. The law is not the shadow. The law is something that the shadow is thrown upon. The law is like a wall, and the shadow is like that of somebody coming around the corner. The true form, the one that Jesus is called here, is on the way. He is approaching. The law is gradually overshadowed with the knowledge that Christ would come to fulfill it. You can't call the law a shadow because a shadow isn't anything. The law was real. The law was given by God. The law was good. The law established everything that God wanted for his people, both moral, ceremonial, and civil. But, but onto that law was a shadow that was growing longer and longer as the one to whom everything pointed got closer and closer, and that person was Christ. And so now the imagery of the shadow comes to the forefront, and it's common in Scripture. 
In fact, you might recall in 2 Kings 20, verse 11, when Hezekiah was dying, he asked Isaiah if the Lord would, would heal him, and Isaiah said he would. And he said, I don't know that I believe that. I want proof. And Isaiah said, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to show the shadow that's on the steps of Ahab? Do you want me to show it go forward 10 steps or back 10 steps? And Hezekiah says, well, it's not that hard to make it go forward 10 steps. Why don't you make it go back 10 steps? Why don't you tell God to prove to me that he's going to heal me by reversing time? And the shadow pulls back. Well, it's not the shadow itself, is it? It's the, it's the shadow that is cast because the sun is what goes back, or the earth is what rotates backwards. Isaiah 30, verse 3, the prophet rebukes the Jews for trying to take shelter in the shadow of Egypt. It's not the shadow that gives you protection. The shadow represents what's really protecting you, which was Egypt. In Psalm 23, we talk about the valley of the shadow of death. Again, it's not shadows that you fear, but it's the death that brings the shadows. Since we've already mentioned Poe, maybe I'll refer to him one more time. Perhaps one of the most famous usages of this concept, the end of his famous poem, The Raven, remember that? And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallid bust of palace just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow shall be lifted nevermore. It's a shadow of this bird that had been tormenting him. There are also positive uses in Scripture. The substance itself is a good thing. For example, shadow is a a good sign in Job 7.2 where it says the slave longs for the shadow or for the shade. Or the psalmist who rests in perfect peace under the shadow of his wings. Psalm 17.8, Psalm 36.7, Psalm 57.1, Psalm 63.7. Over and over again, the psalmist says, I'm going to rest in the comfort of the shadow of your wings. You know the imagery, right? It's like that of a, a great bird that is protecting its young, wrapping them around with her wings, or the great soaring bird that is coming to rescue, and again, the the shadow being seen on the ground, knowing that in that bird there is rescue, in that bird there is hope. That's the way that it's projected here in Scripture as well. And that great rescue looks forward to Christ. Christ himself is the one who casts the shadow on the wall of the law. He indicates that through it, Though it is sturdy and good, it served a purpose which would have a season, and that season had an expiration date, and it was rapidly coming. There's a deliberate imperfection built into the law. It's like when water gets into the clay, and a potter puts it into the kiln without realizing it, and the heat causes that water to turn to steam, and the pottery explodes. It's like that with the law, that that built into the law was this necessary imperfection so that when the time came, it would be obliterated in terms of the ceremonial requirements and the civil arrangements because the one to whom all of that pointed had come. So brothers and sisters, the Jews saw the shadow of the Messiah in the old covenant, but now he's rounded the corner. He's visible in all of his glory, and all the shadows then are gone. And now the new covenant believer stands in the light of promises fulfilled.
The Lord came and he put an end to the constant remembering of our sins, the futility of it. Imagine, if you will, that every year you go to the temple or you go to the tabernacle and you bring an animal and you have the priest sacrifice it, all the while knowing that every single time he does that, it's not enough ultimately. Uh, It would be like if we gathered every year by the order of God at the beach and some representative among us takes a stone and is required in order to atone for all of our sins to throw that stone across the ocean. And every year we gather there as we are told to do, and every year we watch the person, the representative, grab the stone, and every year we watch them throw it, and every year we watch it plunk into the sea. Now we know in our minds it was not successful. That's in many ways what they were experiencing when they would go on that day of atonement. They knew they were being obedient, that God honors this, that this did make me right with him, but that ultimately there had to be a better sacrifice. And that's what all of Hebrews has been teaching us up until now. That that better sacrifice that came was Christ. In our, in our silly illustration, he became the stone and threw himself across the ocean. He became the one who made it possible for us to enter into the presence of the, of the Lord, blameless with great joy. So we move from shadow to substance in verses 1 to 4. Secondly, from ritual to righteousness in verses 5 to 10. You see, this section here corresponds to the text that we covered last week, and specifically 9, 11 to 14. Christ is the high priest of the good things. He is a servant from the perfect heavenly tabernacle. He's the God-man who took his own blood behind the curtain. He is like that red heifer from Numbers 19 that was killed and then the body taken outside the camp to be burned. He is the one who fulfilled all righteousness in every respect. And he came into the very throne room of heaven, not bearing the sacrificial blood of an animal, but the sacrificial blood of himself. And he came into everything that the earthly temple and tabernacle represented and was a shadow of. He came into what was real. You'll notice some quotation marks in your copy of God's Word. Verse 5 begins, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said... And now we receive kind of a loose quotation and paraphrase from the Septuagint from Psalm 40. The words here being attributed to Jesus when he came into the world. So the time of his incarnation, he says to the Father, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, burnt offerings you have not enjoyed. Not that they're wrong, but they're not perfect. They pale in comparison to what Christ did. And just like the tabernacle was appropriate for a season but became irrelevant, so too the activity in the tabernacle, namely the sacrifices and offerings, became irrelevant. The passage of Scripture read to you earlier today from Colossians chapter 2 contains within it verse 17, which is the promise that everything has been fulfilled in Christ and therefore there are no longer regulations that you need to follow in terms of the Old Testament law. The moral law stands, the Ten Commandments stand, In fact, further elaborated and explained by our Lord Jesus, but the civil ceremonial law has passed. Up until the time of Christ, the trumpet that declared the atonement was a rather flat note. There was failure that echoed through the camp of Israel, even in Leviticus 25, when that great trumpet was blown in the time of Jubilee. People knew it wasn't actually perfect yet. It was looking forward to something even better. 
See, we await the day when the final trumpet will sound and Christ will return. When that trumpet blast occurs, he will come forward and it will be a true jubilee, the perfect jubilee, the fulfillment of everything that went on in the Day of Atonement. But for now, daily, weekly, annually, there was this reminder of how far they fell from the glory that guided them and the presence that protected them. The sacrifices were performed in the shadow of the one who would come and would would give his life once and for all. But I want you to notice this again. It's so incredibly important for us that he came to do the will of God. You see, that shadow revealed what was to come. And we're going to look back on on what's already been accomplished and see what he did and now what he has done for us in Christ. And while there's a genuine relief that came from knowing in the Old Testament that sin had been covered, the deep cleansing, the soul-purifying cleansing eluded them because the animals couldn't obey the will of God. Animals. Don't obey God's will the way people do. Animals can give their body and bone and blood, but it required Christ to come. And according to John 1.14, dwell among us in body and bone and blood in order that he may also in his humanity do the will of God perfectly like we never could. So no longer would God merely accept the sacrifice, but now he would delight in it. He would take pleasure in it. He would glory in it. Not only in the body, but in the very will of the sacrifice. He came to do his will. There was a conscious awareness that was fixed on the written commandments here in order that he would carry them out to the letter and the spirit of the law. And by finally filling up what was lacking in that shadow, he toppled it over. He covered the sinners with the cleansing grace that sets them apart forever as those who belong to him. Now, I want to address a theological concern here. And I I confess, this this is moving into the deep end a little bit. But I'd invite you just to maybe harness your attention here if you've if you drifted a little, just for a moment. I'd like to drive this nail in a little deeper. I want to talk about what it means for the Son of God to do the will of the Father. Because you'll notice here the repeated use of I have come to do your will. If you're an underliner, that would be a good place to start today. And brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this does not suggest that God is divided in his will. God doesn't have competing wills. The Son does not have a different will than the Father. What Jesus Christ does is as the God-man, he subordinates, he voluntarily puts under his human will to the will of God just like every human must do in order to fulfill all righteousness. But as the hymn we sung reminded us, could we be totally zealous every moment and simultaneously weeping in repentance every moment, it would still fall woefully short of anything close to obeying God's will perfectly. And so he came as a man to fulfill it perfectly, to submit his human will to the will of the Father, that he might fulfill all righteousness. 
And so when he says, not my will, but yours be done, he is saying, not my human will in its limitation, but your divine will be done. However, the divine will of Jesus Christ was always aligned with the divine will of the Father and the Holy Spirit as the covenant of redemption unfolds in history. Now, the application of that will and the perfect righteousness is that what sanctifies us once and for all is Christ's sacrifice. He did it all for us. His deeds are credited to us so that by sprinkling his own blood on us, he can mark us out as belonging to God and and useful for his service. So, three main acts. Number one, from shadow to substance. We saw that in verses one to four. From ritual to genuine righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, his passive and active righteousness applied to us in verses 5 to 10. And then finally, sacrifice to sanctification. Look at verses 11 to 18. Now this last section, the very peak, the very summit, it corresponds directly to everything we saw in Hebrews 9, 15 to 28, but some key overlaps. There is a new covenant. There is an eternal inheritance that was secured by his death and a perfect redemption that has set us apart forever. And it's by that gracious gift alone that we sinners become the righteousness of Christ in the eyes of our Father. Because the very righteousness of Christ covers us. No other sacrifice is going to be required. So the section ends there in verse 28 with this liberating decree. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait him. That that was kind of the last ringing sound that we covered last week. And so now, as we turn our attention to this text, we see that the human priests are facing unemployment, really at the time that Hebrews is being written. Their jobs are coming to an end. The need for them is, is quickly evaporating. In fact, they still make sacrifices every day. They replaced the veil that was torn when Christ died. They went back to work the very day Jesus rose from the dead like nothing had happened. They clock into work at this bankrupt floppy disk factory of a religion. There's still a market for what they do. There are still clients, but it's very evident that there will soon be no point. And within just a couple decades of the writing of this letter, there wasn't even a temple to do it at anyway. It's all closing up. The system of sacrifice did not replace God, but God replaced the system of sacrifice. He created a movement that could only be brought to completion by his own arrival. He set it into motion. He wound it up. And every single tick of the clock was one step closer to announcing his arrival to put it to an end. He came, offered one single sacrifice, a single nuclear bomb that ended the war. And he does it all in one act. And he walks off stage. Mission accomplished. And Jesus Christ did what no priest would dare to do. He sat down on God's throne, sharing the very throne of the universe to which he is entitled as one of the persons of the Trinity. And he sat down on the throne and he shares it with the Father and he declares victory over sin and death and hell. And now the only task is to wait out for the final and the inevitable 
piling up of his adversaries so he can stand on them as king of the mountain and king of heaven. Then in an act of unimaginable grace, he is going to lift up from among the masses of former rebels, people like you and me, and he is going to call them to stand on the mountain with him and to rule with him and to rest your feet on the crushed, broken, bleeding head of the serpent. That's the future destiny of those who have put their hope in this sacrifice. There is no longer anything that can come between us because there is no longer any sin and the forgiveness has bound us together forever and ever. The priest would stand daily and offer these repeated sacrifices, but Christ came and for all time offered it once. And again in verse 14, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. When he talks about those who are being sanctified, we're talking not about those who are being progressively sanctified, although you are as you walk with the Lord becoming more and more like him. What he's referring to is those who are one by one moving from darkness to light. Those who are being once and for all separated from death to life, from darkness to light, from the kingdom of the devil to the kingdom of God. They are being sanctified one by one as the covenant of redemption unfolds. As all of those who were elect before the foundation of the world finally meet that point in time where the Holy Spirit regenerates them, gives them a new heart, and causes them to act in faith so that for the rest of their time on earth as they await the return of Christ, they can develop the habit of faith or maturing or growing or bearing fruit or whatever you want to call it. So his work's not finished in the sense of calling home his children, but his work is finished in the sense of making the way clear. And so from this day forward, every person who puts their faith in Christ, the long list of those who are to be set apart from death to life are able to get there by his blood. And under his rule, we see the Holy Spirit intended all of this, when he inspired Jeremiah to write, look at verse 16, another quote. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And so as we reach the very apex of the book, as we get into that thin air of the summit, we're not confronted with all the answers to our questions. We're not confronted with total rest from our labor, but we are given great quiet in our consciences because that's ultimately what we crave. We're given great hope that our guilt and our shame has been erased forever. And the author of Hebrews plants the flag up there with this sweet resolve and declares in verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Isn't it beautiful? The God who knows everything chooses not to remember. The imagery is that of taking something and putting it behind your back. Christian, can you delight today? In hearing those good words, the Savior has taken 
the boiling pot of every horrendous thing you've ever done, whether you meant to or not. And because of Christ's sacrifice, had the justice applied so that he can put it behind and remember it never again. It's it's never going to be brought up. It's never going to be thrown in your face. It's never going to be held against you if you're in him. Where there is forgiveness, real forgiveness, divine forgiveness, there's no longer any offering for sin. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ reverses the logic of the argument here. At the beginning, he says that offerings can't take away sin. And now he says that sin has been taken away, so we don't need offerings anymore. Because the one that came did it all. And what he completes is completely done. This is the point where we turn around and begin the descent. And sometimes descents can be treacherous too. Sometimes you can get lost on the mountain on your way down, but I would encourage you to return. And over the next several weeks, the author turns his attention from the exposition of the gospel to an exhortation about the gospel. We're going to see Christ our faith, Christ our hope, Christ our love unfolding in these last three chapters. And I know that you're going to find it both exhilarating and massively helpful as we rejoice in our Savior. Let us pray that he will assist us to that end. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this word. Thank you for your amazing kindness to us. Thank you for sending Christ to be not only the author, but the finisher, the completer, the perfecter of our faith. Thank you for the good word from this writer to the Hebrews, for the way in which the author so clearly lays out for us the superiority of Christ, his ultimate substitute that brings us everything that we have been looking for, everything that our heart desires, that our mind craves, that our soul knows is missing. Lord, I ask if there be one here who has not yet put their faith in Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. That by your Holy Spirit, you would regenerate their soul and give them the ability and the desire to repent and believe the gospel. So they would know what it means to have a perfect conscience, to enjoy the perfect presence of Christ, and to put their faith in the perfect substitute who came in order to fulfill all righteousness so that it could be granted to us when he returns. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.